What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from the Indie Hackers Podcast, and today I'm going to be talking to Josh Pigford, the founder of Bear Metrics. In October of 2013, Josh came up with the idea for Bear Metrics, built the initial version of the product, and sold it to his first paying customer in the span of eight days. Uh, something like six months later, he had $14,000 a month in revenue coming in, and today it's somewhere closer to $70,000 a month. But you don't actually have to take my word for it. You can actually go to bearmetrics.com, click on the demo, and Josh has revealed all of his company's metrics in a Bear Metrics dashboard. So for those of you who don't know, Bear Metrics provides a dashboard that gives you all sorts of analytics and insights into your company's subscription data. So you can see the lifetime value of your customers, your total monthly recurring revenue, how often customers churn, and even a live feed showing you every single time a new customer signs up and gets charged. So Bear Metrics is a super cool product. Josh himself is a very clear thinker who spent years writing about uh, transparently writing about the behind the scenes of Bear Metrics and what it was like for him to start the company and how he found his first users. So he's got a lot of great insights in this interview, and I think it's really going to help you guys learn how to get your businesses off the ground in a reasonable amount of time and hopefully grow it to some degree of the success that Josh has had. This episode is brought to you by SparkPost, the world's fastest growing email delivery service, trusted to send over 25% of the world's non-spam email. Built on AWS, SparkPost's robust cloud API lets apps and websites send and receive email, and is designed for the way developers work today. Sign up now and send 100,000 emails a month for free, forever, with all of the same features that come with paid accounts. Go to pages.sparkpost.com slash ndhackers to learn more. SparkPost. Start fast, deliver more, guaranteed. Welcome to the show, Josh. I'm excited to have you on. Cool. Thanks for having me, Cortland. So, I want to start by... Just having you describe in your own words, what is Barometrics and who uses it? What's kind of like, you know, the origin story behind Barometrics? Sure. So um, in a nutshell, Barometrics gives you insights into your revenue. So um, there's a lot of different aspects of that. You know, there's the metrics component. We do some help businesses forecast future things. Um, we help them make more money um, by collecting on failed charges. There's a, kind of a whole suite of tools around basically helping businesses make more money. Now, the the origin of that is a couple of years ago, well, a few years ago. So 2013, I was running a couple of other SaaS um, products in the survey space, and I needed these numbers. So monthly recurring revenue, lifetime value, churn, sort of these core metrics for any kind of subscription company um, or subscription revenue company. So uh, and at the time, this just wasn't really anything great that existed. I mean, you could either do something, a bunch of stuff in an Excel spreadsheet, um, which was kind of ripe for screwing up or just not taking the time to manually input stuff. Or you could use like a generic analytics platform um, where you have to do a bunch of engineering work to get it up and running. And that also is kind of ripe for getting screwed up because you just, you know, you Maybe you can't get historical data in there or you get data in there, but you, you know, uh, didn't format the data correctly and it kind of screws things up. So, I mean, there were all these factors that really made it difficult to get access to these sort of core metrics. And um, and so I, I was using Stripe on those um, two companies, so Stripe's a payment processor. And, uh, and I figured, well, Stripe's actually got most, if not all, of the data that I need for this. Let me... Just see, let me build this little internal tool for for this and see what happens. And it actually turned out the first iteration was pretty easy to do. It took me 
maybe about a week of my time. And I realized at that point that there's actually was a pretty big need for it from other, um, you know, SaaS friends who are building companies like that. They need this stuff too. And they've been doing things in spreadsheets and all this stuff for a long time as well. And it's a pain. So that was sort of the origin was I launched that in 2013 um, really sort of to scratch my own itch and wasn't planning on turning it into any kind of company, but the demand kind of made it clear that I should do that. Yeah. I remember using Stripe back then when I was working on my SaaS product task force and I built out this entire admin control panel for task force with all sorts of graphs and data that I was pulling in for Stripe. And I think, you know, back in those days, as you were saying, everybody had to do it completely on their own. There was no bare metrics. Um, so it's really awesome that you ended up scratching your own itch. And that's a pattern that I've seen throughout probably like at least half of the interviews I've done for ND hackers. People need something really badly and they end up building their own product to solve their own problem. And I think it's really cool that you didn't initially think that other people were going to use it. What changed your mind? People saying, like me asking some people, uh, some, some friends about it, um, just being like, hey, what do you, I, through conversations about asking what they use. So I didn't want to build the thing. You know, I had better things to do, uh, you know, in my head at least. So I, the last thing I wanted to do was build some new app. Typically, it's a bad, it's a pretty bad use of your time to build internal tools that aren't specific to what, you know, your core offering. Uh, but they're talking with them and be like, hey, they don't have anything great either. And then saying, hey, would you use this if I built something that was other people could use? And they're, you know, the it was sort of a unanimous, yeah, definitely. So, so that was what sort of encouraged it. And at the time you were working on, you said, two different other SaaS products, right? Because you're kind of scratching your own itch and you had... I presume a whole heap of, of work to do for these other SaaS products. When did you decide, you know what, screw those, I'm going with Bear Metrics all the way? A few months after I launched Bear Metrics. So I think it was probably Jan- So I launched the first version of Bear Metrics in November of 2013. And by I think maybe January or February, the growth of Bear Metrics was making it pretty clear that there was a lot, a much larger opportunity here than the survey products that I was working on. So at that point, it was. I was a one man show at the start and and it quickly turned into you know covering anything I needed. So I could just focus on bare metrics hundred percent. And at that point it's like, well, it makes sense to focus on this one thing that's growing really fast instead of three things. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I had a kind of a similar situation this summer when I started Indie hackers, I was working on kind of reviving my own, my old SAS app task force. And I decided, you know, it's not going that well. I have this great idea for another product. Let me put, you know, a few weeks of work into this and see how it goes. And the growth has been so fast that it's just like, there's no point in working on this old thing anymore. Yep. Yep. I, I mean, it feels like it, you hate kind of throwing out the stuff that you may have spent a ton of time. I spent a couple of years working on those survey apps while also like balancing consulting work at the same time to ultimately pay the bills. But it's like, you know, you, you hate to throw out that work, but at the same time, it's all sort of this journey. And so at that point, it made sense to jump ship and focus on one thing. Yeah, exactly. It's a sunk cost. So at some point, you know, you got to go with whatever's growing the fastest, whatever has the most potential in the future. Speaking of, of, of building the product, like I usually ask questions about the tech behind it because the Indie Hacker Resistance is primarily made up of developers. So how did you build bare metrics? Did you use a framework like Rails or Django? Um, what you on? Where did you host it? Yeah. So initially, um, it was a just pretty vanilla Rails app. So I, I mean, I do very, very little development work now, 
Um, I mean, it's better that I don't at this point. Um, uh, so, but I, but I knew enough, especially a few years ago when I was, you know, doing tons of engineering work. I had enough of a skill set to build the initial feature set. So, um, but I mean, I've been doing Rails stuff for a few years, so went with that. It was hosted on Heroku. I mean, super, super vanilla Rails app, like nothing fancy. Just one big monolithic app hosted on Heroku. I mean, spending an arm and a leg. On really on background jobs. I mean, that was an obscene amount of money. So, uh, for, for given this, the, given the scale of the app. So, um, but it got things out the door, right? I mean, I wouldn't have to spend any time on infrastructure. Did you have, uh, some sort of overriding philosophy, like the lean startup movement or fail fast that was driving your initial strategy when you built the product? I don't know. I guess there's some things that maybe would have coincidentally fallen in line with those things. But I mean, I had not like read any of those books or followed any of those frameworks or anything. I mean, I, uh, my mindset's sort of always been, I mean, for 15 years been that I just want to like throw something out there and see what happens. And so I'll throw lots of things out there. I mean, bare metrics is, you know, I mentioned there were two SaaS products before this, so, but bare metrics wasn't like my third thing to ever build. I mean, it's probably like my hundredth thing to build. So there's been so many things before that all ultimately you know, one stepping stone leads to the next and kind of you end up at bare metrics. And, and I've sort of formulated or have ways of doing things that have come up over over those years of just trying things and shutting things down. And but I mean, I guess I would subscribe to the sort of lean startup philosophy, but I mean, I wasn't like intentionally doing that. A lot of people fall into this category of, of starting things and getting maybe you know, two or three weeks into development and then just completely losing their passion for it and saying, ah, I'm just tired of it. And because it got, because it got hard, right? <laughs> Building a hundred products is crazy. Like that's way more than anyone I've ever heard of. What is your strategy to make sure that you can push through? What advice would you have for people who tend to quit when it gets hard? Yeah. So I think the, the biggest thing is to not bite off more than you can chew. Right. So early on, especially when you're in this sort of idea phase, like when you're like, sitting in your car driving down the road or like in the shower or you're like mowing the grass or something where your brain's just sort of mindlessly wondering and thinking up random stuff. It's easy when you're in that phase to believe that you've got the greatest idea on the face of the earth. And so you kind of get caught up in your own hype of, yeah, this is great. And yeah, people all certainly want this and I can probably make a lot of money about on this and then I can be rich and famous and you know, whatever. You romanticize the thing really quickly. And so it's easy to get started on something because you're mentally thinking it's the best thing anyone has ever heard of. But then you like jump into it. Uh, and, and at that point you realize that, okay, this is a little more complicated than I thought. And then the way that you get past that is to just scale back on what it is that you're trying to get out the door and understand that you can't build the greatest thing right off the bat. Um, and that's actually kind of a dangerous thing to do to try to build sort of the final product. Like you need to get something out the door just to prove that there's even a need for it. But that's actually a very basic thing because you should just be solving a really f just one fundamental problem. And that should not be a really complex thing to prove that, the, that you've got a solution to that problem. It won't be the best solution, the very first thing that you do, but you need to prove that you have a potential solution there. And that's a, that's a really basic thing to solve. And that's the only thing that you should be focused on getting out the door. And then 
that's a relatively easy thing to push through. I mean, like, like I said, I built the first version of bare metrics with in about like seven or eight days of my time. Like that wasn't enough time for me to throw my hands in the air and say, ah, I give up. This is too much work. You know, it's a week. Like, so, and from that, I mean, like my very first customer was like a $250 a month customer, which was great. Fantastic. That was pretty good proof for me. At that point, you've then, if you've actually started solving a problem, the, the, the sort of momentum is kept up and the, you get this extra encouragement from um, the validation from like actually having paying customers. And at that point, it's easy to push through some of the harder stuff because you've, you've got real sort of tangible evidence that there's something there. Yeah, it's the, the best validation, huh? Having someone pay for your product right out of the gate. I think it's fascinating how much of, of startups and business comes down to psychology because a lot of times people do, they kind of follow their gut and do the intuitive thing, which is often the wrong thing. The intuitive thing is, man, this product really sucks right now and I don't want to get it out the door because every other product I see that's successful looks great. And people don't necessarily have a window into like how these products looked when they first launched. Like I bet you Barometrics looked absolutely nothing like it does today. And so they, they spend their wheels spending weeks and months to get it perfect. And by that point in time, it built the wrong thing and they didn't even know it. Yeah, I mean, because the, the dangerous part is that you're making assumptions up until you've got cu- paying customers. And with assumptions, you run a pretty decent risk of being wrong. And the longer you sit there and assume things, the more wrong you have potential of being. So you need to get away from assuming things as quickly as possible. And that just means shipping something as quickly as possible. So your first, comp- uh, your first customer paid you $250 a month. I assume right out of the gate. How did you find your your earliest customers? Uh, Twitter. I mean, you know, I, I didn't like it wasn't like Twitter ads or anything, but I mean, I just posted on Twitter that I, I've got this SaaS analytics for Stripe thing. So I had a very specific niche, which was not um, all subscription companies, not even all companies on on Stripe, but SaaS companies on Stripe. So that was a very specific thing to to jump out of the gate with. And, you know, that's a a community that easily and readily shares with one another. So I knew a few people. So then I would mention on Twitter and those people would share it on Twitter and all these people. It was a really easy sell because again, there was nothing that existed at the time that would do this. So the ability to click on the link in Twitter takes you to bare metrics and then click a button that connects your Stripe account and then you're done. I mean, you could be up and running in seconds. So it was kind of a, it was a really easy sell to a market that was sort of ripe for, because this was also when Stripe was, I mean, really starting to get popular. Um, It had been around for, I don't know, a year or two at that point, but I mean, it was really starting to gain some steam. So, but the, the, the ecosystem around Stripe was still really, really new. So the timing on that just worked out well. Yeah. And the product sounds like, the ease of use, as you mentioned, for people going from clicking a link to actually having a working an analytics platform for their strike metrics seems like it's it's killer. I in the past I tried launching some stuff on Twitter and for me it was kind of like firing off these tweets into this empty void of nothingness where no one heard me. I'm not sure how many followers you had. Not many. It was probably under a thousand. I, I think the the takeaway isn't launch stuff on Twitter. It's the takeaway is finding where you're potential customers are and then making it a really easy sell for them. So, I mean, I didn't have a big, there was zero like pre-launch. There was no landing page where you could drop in an email address. Um, there was no private beta. There was, it was just, I just flipped the switch and then started kind of reaching out to random people I knew and then they shared it. So I think the problem 
as people, you know, you think of like a, a beta testing phase or um, like building up this email list ahead of time. The problem is you can get stuck in that forever and, you, and, it, and it sort of buys you time that it does not need to buy you. Right. So, you know, you don't need but like having a landing page where somebody could drop an email address, you feel like you're doing something productive by having that there and that you're like building a business sort of, and it lets you just sit there and like tweak random things on your product that nobody's seen yet forever. I mean, you could do that for, you know, months and months and months or some people do it for years and, but your email list is going up and you think that you're being productive and you're not right. So you need to just, have someone start using it and then try to get them to give you some money for it. Then repeat and just do that over and over and over again. Yeah. And I think a lot of software developers that I've talked to are so biased towards whatever strategy will allow them to write the most code and talk to the fewest people. Sure. Right. Human interaction is so scary. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like deprioritize any sort of human interaction. And I understand it. Like I, for my last product, I spent so much time coding and I just didn't really want to do the marketing thing. And then for indie hackers, it's like, all marketing all the time. I write almost no code. It's nothing but talking to people. And it's like the difference is stunning. Like if you just break through that barrier and get over the hump and just force yourself to do it, force yourself to try to sell, then I find the wall kind of comes down. At least it did for me. Oh, for sure. I mean, some of our earliest bumps in growth uh, came not from feature additions, but from marketing efforts. So, I mean, one of the biggest sort of increases or changes in our growth rate came from um, doing so bare metrics data is public. So you can go to demo.baremetrics.com and see all of our numbers. And we had done that a few months prior, but then buffer was pretty popular as far as open startup kind of stuff goes also uses Stripe. And then we worked out a deal where they would make their bare metrics account public as well, which you can go see at buffer.baremetrics.com. And they're super, I mean, you know, they've got tens of thousands of customers and way more than that. If you include free free customers, and they just have a, a really significant reach in the startup space. So when they made their Barometrics dashboard public, like that was a purely, that was something all arranged via email and required basically zero code on my part, but had a huge impact on our long-term growth. And it's like, that's the kind of stuff that will have bigger impacts than, you know, adding some feature or even adding polish to some feature. I noticed another big part of your marketing strategy is content marketing because I was on the bare metrics site earlier this week and you guys have a ton of awesome, useful content on your blog. A lot of which I recognized from having seen it in my email or in Hacker News or people sharing it on Twitter earlier. Uh, so for example, you've got the bare metrics business Academy where you publish articles on teaching developers and entrepreneurs how to start, build and grow their businesses. How have you, how has your content marketing strategy worked out? And how did you get started with it? So it, I mean, it's a really our, the only type of marketing that we actively do. And it's a, it's, it's us playing the long game. Usually one piece of content doesn't instantly lead to lots of new customers, but it's, it's the, the sum of all the content that we put out that ultimately drives lots of traffic and lots of really targeted traffic um, because we're, we're, we're targeting founders and entrepreneurs and so that's our customer. So we put out stuff that's useful to them and then, uh, and then they eventually find their way to the, to the app. I don't know that I initially set out to do like, okay, content marketing, that, that's our shtick. It just seemed like the thing to do. So for me writing, I, and I write most of our content still, that's not, that won't scale forever. But the writing, writing about the stuff that we're doing at Bare Metrics is, uh, is somewhat therapeutic for me. So 
um, in a way, in the way that it like lets me work out my thoughts on a given topic. And it helps me sort of reflect on things that we've been doing or testing or trying what doesn't work. And so writing is a way for me to sort of process all that stuff. So selfishly, it helps, I think it helps me be a better founder, but at the same time, it also happens to work really well as a, a driver of growth because it's going right after the people who are our customers. So that, that I think early on, I just started writing because that's like, it helped me figure out how to run the business. And so it just kind of happened to work out that that worked as a, as a marketing strategy as well. It's interesting that you listed some of the ancillary benefits of writing, especially that it helps you organize your thoughts because I found the exact same thing. Every month I look back at what happened with Indie Hackers, for example, and I write a month in review blog post where I just analyze, you know, my traffic and revenue growth and my plans for the next month. And without fail, it always helps me organize my thinking. And I initially did it just to be transparent and keep people updated and hope that they would see things that I didn't see. And maybe we could bounce ideas back and forth, which brings me to the topic of transparency, because I know you've done similar things with Barometrics pretty much from the beginning. You've always given interviews and talked to people about what you're doing. You've opened up your revenue for the world to cease ever since the day that you uh, made your demo. And today you've got the Open Startups Initiative where other people can also open up their revenue and share it on their own Barometrics dashboard which has been super helpful for me at Indie Hackers because if I want to find someone to interview, I just have to go to your dashboard and pick a company from the list. But it's also been helpful to other people in the community who want to be inspired by or see what's possible. Uh, And so they go look at these metrics and these dashboards. Uh, And I think in a large way, Indie Hackers could probably not exist without the transparency movement that companies like you and Buffer and others started uh, years ago. So what got you into transparency and why did you take up the mantle of being open about everything that was going on at Bear Metrics. For us, it would be generous to say that I like intentionally set out to 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 either start or even try to be a part of any kind of like transparency movement. I mean, I think us doing our making the dashboard public was initially born out of laziness, really on my part, because uh, I wanted to have a demo uh, available of what Bear Metrics is and how it works instead of just screenshots and instead of, you know, generating a ton of just dummy data, it made more sense to just make our stuff public. Like it was at that point, I mean, you know, we're still making relatively small amounts of money, I mean, less than a couple thousand dollars a month. And there was no real risk to do that. So it was sort of an easy, like, hey, cool, let's throw it out there and see what happens. And I just saved myself a bunch of development work for having to build a demo page. But then that, I, I think the the tangential benefit of that was that we were able to help other businesses. Right. And I mean, I, that's always been something that I enjoy doing is so, you know, some people have poured into me and answered to all the questions that I've had and obscure emails to people. I really have, you know, didn't know, but they still took the time to answer questions for me. And I wanted to repay that in some way. So, you know, having the public dashboard, which kind of, I think, um, distills the, sort of high growth myths that exist, uh, in the startup world, especially like in startup tech media kind of stuff that celebrates these, you know, unicorn stories instead of just showing how it really is. So that to me, that made sense to do that. And, um, and that was a nice benefit that came from that. And then, but like you said, like you mentioned the stuff where, you know, you post about something and then all of a sudden you get all this feedback from people. That was the case for, for us as well, where you put the stuff out there and then all of a sudden you start having all these interactions with other founders and other people in similar situations. And, um, I think there's this community aspect that comes out of it that uh, is really beneficial to everybody. So 
that's sort of where we decided to keep doing the transparency stuff. And that's when a lot of the blog posts started getting a little more transparent and, you know, really specific and mentioning numbers and all sorts of stuff and not trying to like hide behind anything um, was because I found it really useful again from that like personal reflection standpoint and not having to hold anything back. But it also was really useful because you know, you'd get the feedback from lots of people and kind of also learn what other founders are going through, which also, again, like we can work that back into the app and how we're solving problems for businesses. So, so it works out really well for us. I mean, I think the danger is thinking that transparency uh, for transparency's sake is just sort of somehow right or that it defaults to something you should do. Like everybody should be transparent. Like, I don't think that's the case. I, I think transparency is only useful for the story that it tells, right? So Buffer, for instance, who's super open. Well, I mean, there's no direct business benefit to customers knowing what their revenue is. I mean, there's there's no particular reason that that should matter. But what they're able to do is to tell this sort of story or have this narrative around openness that brings a ton of attention to them and their company and what it is that they do. And so by helping lots of other businesses those businesses also then sort of learn about the the what Buffer offers as a product. And um, I think when you're able to use that transparency as a way to, to tell a story, then it becomes really useful. I think just like making your numbers public and posting, say, like a, you know, a, a monthly revenue blog post and then leave it at that in and of itself isn't terribly useful. Like nobody's really gained anything. So I think it's important to figure out why it matters to you and your potential customers. I mean, yes, there's some trade-offs. So I think two, probably the biggest trade-offs are one, even though all of our numbers are public, the people that are able to see those numbers aren't privy to the decisions that we're making in the company based around those numbers. Or And so it might be easy to look and say like, oh, well, churns up. So something must be wrong with bare metrics. Like, no, like we're fully aware of what our churn rate is. And there's, you know, X, Y, and Z are in the pipeline to address that. But it can appear as though something's like terribly wrong and things are doomed just because you're looking at a given number. I think it can also be from a competition standpoint. So, which isn't something that I don't, I don't really pay attention to any, to any of our competition. Um, but it, I think it's, it spawned a whole slew of copycats. So you know, somebody who hasn't ever built anything before has had any kind of like real success with anything sees bare metrics and then says like, okay, I mean, so bare metrics like is making $60,000 a month right now. Like if I made $6,000 a month, that'd be cool. And so then they say, okay, I'll just do what bare metrics is doing and I'll just have fewer customers and that's fine. And so then you end up, I mean, just dozens of direct copycats. I mean, down to the pixel that all sort of cropping up after we, we made the dashboard public because then you're, you're able to see a number and then you kind of, you get, uh, you kind of get with money bags in your eyes and you start thinking that, Hey, I can do that too. And realizing that like, that's not just the product that makes this something that's uh, successful, right? It's the whole thing. It's the customer experience and the support and X, Y, and Z. Like, there's so many different factors there, but having public numbers makes people think that like that it's an easy thing that they also can do and kind of rip off and copy you and that they've somehow done something successful. I've never accepted the fact that people will do a pixel by pixel copy of somebody else's website. It used to drive me crazy, but now it, like it just makes me feel sad for them. 
Uh, there's too many of them to like. It's just nuts. What are they thinking? I know. And, and almost all of them uh, disappear within a few months. Another thing that's related that I think is super interesting is very often when uh, an indie hacker's interview becomes pretty popular, if it goes on Hacker News or if it spreads on Twitter, there will be this class of of people that will take some very specific point from the interview, maybe an advantage that the founder had or, or a problem that they overcame, and they will conclude that that problem is 99.9% of why the business was successful. Like They will obsess over the service level detail and ignore all the stuff that goes on under the surface, all the customer support, all the cold emails that people are sending, all the difficult things that are happening. And I'm wondering if there is anything like that at Bare Metrics, some sort of behind the scenes going on that most people aren't really aware of, but that are really key to your success. Mm, I don't know. We've, we really do write about pretty much everything. Um, okay. Well, what do you think is something that you do write about? That's one of the most crucial aspects of bare metrics. So I think that people underestimate the, um, the benefit of talking to customers. I mean, I, I spend not as much as I used to, but I still spend an inordinate amount of time on the phone with customers. So, um, that's, that's, new customers, that's new potential customers, that's customers that have been with us for a year, two years, spending a ton of time talking to customers. And uh, and that's not exchanging emails, that's not in-app messages, that's on the phone. The big benefit of that is you get, you're able to get real feedback from that. And that's something that like a little form field somewhere on a site does not give you insight to, or a little survey does not give you insight to. And I think a lot of our success can be attributed to conversations with customers and understanding where our customers are coming from and like what pain points they actually have. That's the, that's the thing with a phone call is that you're able to like get their surface level feedback on something, but then dig in deeper to really figure out what's going on and not, it's not about, you know, like, Oh, they answered, they picked a out of A, B, C and D in this multiple choice thing. So here's what they need. Like, no, there's more to it. But you have to have a, a you know a human conversation to figure that out, and that just takes spending a ton of time on the phone. How did you get started with the the phone calls? Is this something that you were doing from the early days with the product, or did you kind of grow into it? I started doing it within the, within the first year. I mean, maybe in the first like six months, it just started making sense. Like to me, it was the easiest way to to get fast feedback, and I found people. I hate responding to. Like, okay, so like. Um, if you had wanted to do an interview for me with me for this and it was all text, like he was like, I'll, I'll email you like 20 questions and you can email me, email me back whenever you want. I would just never, ever respond. Like it's just too much work for me to type all that out. It's way easier for me just to sort of stream of conscious spout out what's in my head instead of trying to just sit there and type out these long answers to things. And that's the case for a lot of people too. So it's, you know, if I sent them questions in an email, asking for feedback. Well, they may have great feedback, but they're taking the time to sit there and write it all out. Just seems like for me and for other people, it seems like a lot more work than just hopping on a phone call and having a quick conversation. So that's sort of really where it came from was like, it's just easier to have a phone call. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that because for indie hackers, they do a lot of text-based interviews and I'll send people these questions that take at least an hour or two to answer. And unsurprisingly, about 50% of the people I send the questions to Never get back to me. Uh, so maybe I should switch to, to your system of talking to customers at <laughs> Bare Metrics. What kinds of, of things have you learned by talking to customers on the phone that 
you didn't necessarily know before you got started with bare metrics? Yeah. So early on, I mean, the first version of bare metrics lasted two months and then I scrapped the entire code base and started over. That came from customer feedback and, and realizing, you know, I had, because it started as a, a thing where I'm scratching my own itch, it was just that first version was just the things that I wanted, which were um, really high level, like what's my current MRR or what's my current churn. There was no real sort of insight into the historical stuff at all and found out really quick that not only do people want that, but it's, it's genuinely useful to, to look back over time and see the trends of, of metrics. And so, I mean, that was one of the earliest things that I learned right out of the gate was, you know, people giving people more information, um, is a good starting point. And then also, you know, something that we're spending a ton of time on now is helping people figure out why that information or why those numbers, why that data is useful and what to do with it. So that's a really big problem in the analytics space is that knowing what to do with the numbers is, is super hard to figure out. So, yeah, I used mixed panel in the past and I basically just tracked anything that I could think of. And after a while, I just never looked at it because there was no obvious way that it can inform my decision making. It's analysis paralysis, right? So it's like you, you end up looking at the numbers and you're like, okay, cool. This number's 37. Like, so what? Who cares? What do I do with that? Right. So, um, yes, that's a big problem. So education, you would say, is a big part of Bear Metrics' business. Is that what the Business Academy section of your website is for? Do you direct your customers to articles uh, in that section to help them figure out their metrics? Or is it more for people who aren't customers yet? The public-facing content is more about marketing. We try to do uh, any kind of like, hey, what's my churn mean? I mean, we try to do as much in-app sort of guidance as possible. Um, Sometimes that means hey, go read these few articles to, to really dig in deeper. But I think there's a lot from just a UI and a UX standpoint that uh, can be done to, to help surface that kind of stuff. Okay, so I've got some questions now that are a little bit less specific. And the first is, what have the biggest challenges been for you at Bare Metrics? Has there ever been any obstacle that you were worried that you wouldn't be able to get over? Or has it been pretty much smooth sailing for you guys from the start? No, so this uh, this past summer was probably the roughest patch for Bear Metrics. So we uh, we raised about eight hundred thousand dollars over the past couple of years, and we ended up spending all of that. And so we're we were really close to running out of money this past summer. Uh, so that was for us. I mean, we had to everybody had to take a pay cut. It was so it was, it was rough. So we're just like on the tail end of that, like coming out of that and getting everybody back up to full salary now, you know, six, seven months later. So we're fine at this point, but I mean, there was a, there was a couple months there where it was, it was a little rocky. What's the story behind your fundraising? Cause I know you started off bootstrapped. Yep. So started in November and then through, let's see, July or August of the next year. So I guess I'd be like eight, no, like nine or 10 months, totally bootstrapped. Um, I think got up to, Fifteen, twenty thousand dollars, or something like that, just bootstrapped. So initially, we were built just for Stripe. So early on, I mean, like a week after launching the first version of Bear Metrics, the guys at Stripe reach out and were super supportive. Because I mean, really, Bear Metrics was probably the, the most significant thing at that point ever built on Stripe. Like nobody had really tried to tackle any sort of add-on um, or thing that was like powered almost completely by Stripe. So. There was a relationship that was started there um, that led to 
yeah, eight, nine, 10 months later, we'd had a couple of conversations. I'd flown out there a couple of times. And then that summer of 2014, went out there for a meeting with them and they decided to start this thing. What do they call it? Like the Stripe Platform Fund or something. I don't remember what it's called, but they started it so that they could basically invest in companies that were building stuff on Stripe to sort of like encourage this developer ecosystem. So that that was the initial five, uh, yeah, 500,000 came from that. And then a year and a half later, we were at a point where, and this is super typical, and this is why companies end up raising multiple rounds because you hire people and then you run out of money. So, so we needed to raise a little bit more money. So then we raised an additional 300,000 on top of the, that first 500. So that was 800,000 over the course of a year and a half, I guess. That's a lot of money. And of course, the pressure after raising money from investors is always to spend. Well, right. And I, I mean, I think like the most investors aren't like, you know, uh, there's no like, hey, you should be spending lots of money. Like the, that's not the, the sort of thing that they, that investors say. There are some expectations around that, but not, again, it's not in like a, I think it, de- it depends on the investor. So we had two different investors that ultimately put in that money and, and it was pretty helpful um, relationships to have there. Like they've, they've been healthy and like not this weird, like, I feel like anybody's like, you know, looking over my shoulder, telling me what to do or anything like that. Um, but it was, so it's like the money itself, they were the source of the money. Um, and the money in and of itself isn't a bad thing. It was just my, like not being wise with the money, which is, again, that's the case. That's why most startups that fail, it's because they were, you know, they ran out of money because they weren't spending it wisely. If they were uh, overestimating growth. Um, I mean, you, you know, you talk of even like the guys like at Buffer where, about the exact same time that we were having all this trouble, like they had, they wrote this really long article about how, you know, they had to lay off some people and cut back on expenses because they did the same thing. Like they overestimated growth and then it takes a while to course correct that kind of stuff because you know what you're having, the, the, the large majority of your expenses come from payroll. And so those are, those are knobs that are not easily twiddled, right? Like you can't just be like, Oh, Hey, you know what? I'm going to not pay you next month. Like, it doesn't work like that, you know? So it's like, there's people's lives that are affected by this stuff. So, you know, as soon as you realize there's a problem, you have to sometimes take some drastic measures to save the business. So eh, that's how it goes. Besides that, if you could go back in time, is there anything in particular that you would do differently knowing what you know today? Um, I mean, I think there's some like barometric specific things that I would have done differently. Like I wish we had expanded outside of Stripe earlier. Um, I wish... Uh, that I had sort of been a lot more frugal early on, like not hired as quickly. You ended up hiring before you raised money, right? I had hired uh, one full-time and two part-time who eventually became full-time after the fundraising. But no, I mean, I, yeah, I had enough, you know, bootstrapped. I think it was, I think it was 20,000 by the time the funds were in the bank account. So at that point, yeah, there was enough to, to cover a couple of full-time salaries anyways. So you mentioned earlier that it might not scale, but you're writing most of the blog posts and the content on the site, and you're talking to customers on the phone, and I'm sure you're also immensely busy with your other founder responsibilities. So what's your day-to-day like? Yeah, so it's a it's a mix of, because I, I, mean, I sort of also play product manager. So, you know, we've got all the, these features in the works, and so it's sort of my job to spec that stuff out, and then reviewing design comps and then like making sure those 
we've we've automated a lot of the process and got a little bit uh, a, a pretty solid system in place where things can move forward pretty good bit without needing my intervention. But there's still, especially in the design phase and just figuring out how this will affect the app and the customers and the experience and all that stuff. I spent a lot of time on that. Uh, yeah, customer, not customer support so much as just sort of like just talking to customers and figuring out what their needs are and and not, but not so much like trying to solve like, hey, this thing doesn't work inside the app. Like I don't really spend any time on that, but uh, and then yeah, writing content. I mean, I wrote like a 2000 word article this morning and a thousand word article yesterday. I'll have a couple more articles this week. So I spent a lot of time with that too. That's huge. Have you found that the way you spend your time has changed a lot as Bear Metrics has grown? Because I know at the beginning as a founder, you have to wear a lot of hats. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think I don't do, I'm not doing like really any design work or any development work, but I mean, that's, and, and not a lot of direct customer support work. I mean, I'm almost more like a chief marketing officer slash product manager more than anything right now. And that's, that's been the case for a while. I mean, I've hired out basically all the other major positions besides that. So is it your goal to eventually replace your marketing job or your product management job? Um, I mean, yes, from a, like just optimizing the company. Uh, yes. I mean, I think that makes sense to do that. I, there's a ton of stuff that we still sort of want to do that it would make sense to hire other people for differing positions than like a, a marketing um, or product manager, but eventually I assume we'll get there. On that note, it's pretty early in 2017. Do you guys set yearly goals and what do you see as Bear Metrics's future? Yeah. So the big thing, and this will, this should happen here in the next like two or three months is getting to profitability, which, you know, if you're like in the bootstrap world, that's laughable. But I mean, like here we are like over three years in and we're like, yeah, we hope to be profitable soon. But I mean, like for a, a company that's raised some money that ends up, that's a big deal. So hope to be completely profitable here by like, it'll probably be like March or April. And then uh, revenue goals, you know, million dollar run rate, preferably more than that, but that's sort of like the realistic goal that we should be able to hit fine. Then we've got a, some really big product stuff that is in the pipeline. So the, I think the bare metrics as a product itself will become super mature this year and, and become like this really powerful analytics platform. So that's sort of the goals. Yeah. It's exciting stuff. And on a final note, I'd love to know if you could give one piece of advice to aspiring indie hackers who want to create a business of their own, what advice would you give? What mistakes do you see other people making to which the solutions might not be so obvious? To start, it's easy to research building startups. Um, it's easy to to read stuff on Hacker News or even, you know, look at um, stuff on Product Hunt or like just spend a lot of time like looking at other things instead of actually producing something. And I think that's the biggest you know, most people, it's not that they can't find a market for something. It's, it's not that they're charging the wrong prices. It's not that their design looks like crap. It's like, it's just not ever doing anything like just sitting there and talking about, you know, Hey, I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to do a startup one day. Like don't do a startup, just build, build something that solves a problem. You know, like you don't do a startup, you solve problems. Right. And so I think most people don't, they just don't ever actually start anything. It's uh substantial. They sit there and, and stay in research phase for years on end. Agreed. And that is a perfect spot to end the interview. 
If you're listening, get out there and start something. Build something bare bones in the next week or two and try to sell it to a customer. Josh, where can we go to learn more about you and what you're doing at Bear Metrics? Yep. So Bear Metrics is at uh, bearmetrics.com. I'm on Twitter at Spigfer. That's S-H-P-I-G-F-O-R-D. Uh, or you can shoot me an email, josh at uh, joshpigver.com. Um, and I think that's that's all the, the ma- major places. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, you should join me and a whole bunch of other indie hackers and entrepreneurs on the ndhackers.com forum, where we talk about things like how to come up with a good idea and how to find your first paying customers. Also, if you're working on a business or a product of your own, it's a great place to come and get feedback from the community on what you're working on. Again, that's www.ndhackers.com forum. Thanks, and I'll see you guys next time.